North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Hey guys, Dr. Lowe here. What you are about to hear is a show that was previously recorded last week. Uh, we had some audio problems, so I took it off the website, made some edits, and re-uploaded it. Uh, the information provided is so great that I didn't want to do away with it completely. Um, so thanks for your patience, and enjoy the show. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. You have tuned in to another episode of Dr. Low Radio. Thank you so much for joining us for another fabulous show. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel. I'm a naturopathic doctor here in sunny San Diego, California, with a specialty in digestive disorders as well as thyroid and autoimmune disease. If you haven't checked out my website, more information about me, do so, drlaurennoel.com. Hope you all had a fabulous 4th of July. I sure did. I got to hang out with some girlfriends and check out the fireworks. It was just awesome. I'm a huge fireworks fan. I'm like a little kid when I get out there. And I was blown away. They actually spelled USA in the sky this time. It's like, how do they do that? So hopefully you guys had a fabulous, fabulous time. I uh, did have a blog on um, how to have a healthy 4th of July on Jenna Phillips' site, jennaphillips.com. So hopefully you guys got to check that out. And I'm blogging for her every week. So that's been a lot of fun. Last week's show was fabulous. If you missed it, definitely check it out. It was on Lyme disease with Dr. Nicola McFadgen. If you're not familiar with Lyme disease, it is often called the great imitator. It has a lot of symptoms that are very similar to commonly diagnosed conditions, um, but sometimes these conditions are actually Lyme disease, things like um, fibromyalgia, MS, multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue syndrome. We hear about these things, but sometimes these actually are Lyme disease. So if you have these conditions, if you know someone who does, point them in the direction of the show. It's a a great resource to hear, and you can catch all the previous shows, including that one, on blogtalkradio.com slash drlowradio or on iTunes as a podcast. So check out the uh, podcast directory, and you can find me through that. Just want to give you a few announcements, and then we will get to the meat of the show. Uh, last week, we had Aaron Huggins pop on uh, real quick to tell us about the Sugar Smackdown. It's a 21-day sugar detox that she's putting together, and uh, it's not too late to sign up if you haven't yet. I will be lecturing um, for that program, so obviously I definitely support what she's doing. Um, I'll be lecturing on the physiology of hormones, stress hormones, sex hormones, and how all those factors need to be in balance to really kick that sugar habit for good and uh, drop those pounds. And you guys know Sean Croxton from Underground Wellness. He'll be talking about gut physiology and how that's related to sugar cravings. We'll also have uh, Dr. Katie Shanahan on. She is the author of uh, Deep Nutrition, fantastic book, and she'll be lecturing for the program as well. So it's a really great quality program that will provide a well-rounded approach to help end those sugar cravings because, as you guys know, it's more than just saying, I'm not going to eat the Twinkie. It's, okay, why do you crave the Twinkie? What can we do to help restore balance to where it's just not an, an issue anymore? And so that's what the program is all about. So get registered. The website is uh, Dr. Lowe, D-R-L-O, sugarsmackdown.com, and you can get signed up there. Uh, we will be taking callers as well for the show tonight as usual, the number 818 818- Four nine five six nine one nine. That's eight one eight four nine five six nine one nine. And I'll do my best to check Facebook and Twitter questions too. So that's facebook.com slash Dr. Low Noel. That's D R L O N O E L. And twitter.com slash Dr. Lauren Noel. 
next week's show, I don't have anybody scheduled, and um, I kind of just want to take the week off. I think that's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to take a break, and we will be back in two weeks with Rob Wolf. He is the author of The Paleo Solution. That will be a really popular show. He has a huge online following, so I'm excited about that one. And then the week after that, we'll have Dr. Sherry Tenpenny on the show. That will be all about vaccinations. Do you need vaccinations? What about for kids? The pros and cons, all that. She's so knowledgeable about that, so it will be a really great resource to have her on the show as well. Let's get to tonight's show. We have a fabulous woman on the show tonight, Nora Gagoudis. She is the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind. I had the opportunity to meet her several months back at a at a lecture, and uh, we got to talk during lunchtime. And I, I kid you not, I did not want to go back into the lecture. I just wanted to keep talking to her and picking her brain because it was like brain candy talking to her. So I'm really excited that she's on the show. Nora has a background in diet and nutrition spanning some 25 years. She's widely recognized, respected, and sought after. Um, in the field. She's recognized by the Nutritional Therapy Association as a certified nutritional therapist and also board certified in holistic nutrition through the National Association of Nutritional Professionals. Because of her expertise, she has appeared on many radio shows and TV shows. She actually has her own radio show on Voice America's radio um, on the Health and Wellness Channel. Uh, Check that out at voiceamerica.com. And she also has a radio show on iTunes, so you can check that out too. Um, she has served as a trainer for the State of Washington Institute of Mental Health, where she illuminate, illuminates a nutrition's impact on mental health for state workers at all levels. She maintains a private practice in Portland, Oregon, which is where I got to meet her, um, as both a certified nutritional therapist and a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist. So very excited to have her on the show. Let me go ahead and bring her on the air. Nora, are you with us? I most certainly am, and thank you for that wonderfully generous introduction. <laughs> well, you deserve every word, so thank you so oh, much. Well, well, it's very cool, actually, knowing uh, the hosts that I uh, come on to be interviewed with. I know. That was my great guess. I, I talked for the first time on the air, and so, yeah, but with you, you know, I got to chat with you at quite a length about um, nutrition and your philosophy with your book, and um, so I was just fascinated from, from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got we. I guess we both got a little bit engrossed. We ended up missing <laughs> part of the lecture. Just talking Not supposed and talking. to tattle on me, Nora. They weren't supposed yeah. to know. We slipped in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe somebody took notes for us, but. Yeah, exactly. So, Nora, yeah. let me let me know a little bit about um, your history. I mean, I read your bio to the audience, but what's your real sure, bio? Sure. What what got you to, to to the point you're at now? Oh man, you know what a convoluted journey really that was. I mean, I I think I uh I got started uh in with respect to my interest in nutrition just sort of reading some really obscure popular maybe not even that popular book on the subject, but the whole concept sort of captured my imagination that it could actually affect the way you felt and thought by changing what you ate and and what you supplemented with and all that. And so my earliest interest really was more so in supplements than food specifically, which is kind of an easy trap to get sucked into because a lot of the magazine articles and a lot of the emphasis when you, know, when you learn about this, I think probably even from a naturopathic perspective, right, it's that evidence-based nutrition, you know, what what vitamin does what for what or what supplement does what for what, rather than looking at sort of this uh, the integrated whole of how your diet plays into everything and and how uh, things work as a system. And so I, you know, 
ventured off onto that whole uh, th- onto that whole path, and uh, could quote chapter and verse on almost I could walk into any health food store, grab a bottle off the shelf, and spend three hours talking about it. But it took me a long time to figure out how actual food played into everything, and I got sort of smacked around by a lot of different ideas, different ways of going about things. And, of course, I went the the vegetarian route for a little while, and that just did not work out well for me. And um, uh, and in doing some of the kind of consultations that I was doing for a number of years, I heard from just scores of people what they were doing, what kinds of problems they were having, what was working for them, what wasn't working for them. And started really accumulating a mass uh, kind of a kind of a database um, in my own head and in my own notes about about all of that. And uh, there always seemed to be something kind of missing, I think, in my whole in my whole grasp of the whole subject. There was uh, little compartmentalized bits and pieces that I was really proficient with, but I didn't have a unifying um, structure to kind of pull it all together until I stumbled across uh, the work of Weston Price and began thinking in terms of our evolutionary history and then moving beyond that uh, to try to figure out um, what what all that might have to do with the world that we're living in now, which of course is quite a bit different uh, than even the way it was in Weston Price's time much less, you know, tens of thousands or even a million or two years ago. So it's it's been a trip. And, you know, it, it's it, I'm constantly adding uh, new uh, layers to the onion, but, uh, but I feel like I have a real solid foundational piece with, uh, you know, with the using the work of nutritional pioneers and using uh taking into account aspects of our evolutionary history it it has to be a starting place for anybody in this because whatever was going on as we evolved was really going to uh in many ways help shape and mold our physiological requirements and whatever foods we would have eaten through most of our history really would have gone a great deal uh toward establishing our nutritional requirements. And so that has to be our starting place. But rather than just presenting that as the ultimate good idea, mm-hmm. um, I've found in, in more recent years uh, that there's a value in taking a step beyond that and, and figuring out how we apply these principles to the way we're living now. And also really coming to a realization, too, that when when our ancestors selected foods to eat, it wasn't because they were necessarily trying to be careful about what they ate so that it would be the healthiest possible thing. I mean, I'm sure that they had some good ideas about that. But also, they were mainly interested in surviving. (laughs) And uh, they were in a feast or famine kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And we still have uh, the genetic makeup of these people, and we still have the psychology of these people, but I don't think that 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 the way they ate was necessarily the last word on how we take those principles and apply them to our best advantage. 
Mm-hmm. And so looking at um, some of the more recent, you know, human longevity research um, and taking into account, too, simply the, the toxic world that we're living in now, I think have to enter into this discussion in order for it to be uh, optimally applicable to the average uh, person in a modern world. Yeah, yeah. And I like that. I, I love that about your approach. Is that it's, it's more than just looking like, okay, how did you know cavemen eat? It's more than that. It's because right. their motivation was very different, obviously, from the way that they ate. I'm sure they knew like how their body felt with certain things, but for the most part, they wanted to survive. Right. No. Right. They would have eaten almost anything that would have been edible. I mean, we're designed as omnivores, and so we're going to eat whatever's available for us to eat. And and that's all fine and good. Um, and uh, and actually, I think if the average person were just to simply apply those paleo principles, they'd be far better off than than the average sort of standard American uh, diet-oriented person. But I think that there. I think that it pays to go beyond that because as extreme as it might sound to some people to go beyond that or even go that far, um, we're living in fairly extreme conditions. And we're a little bit like, you know, we've all heard the the whole uh, idea of the boiling frog. You know, little by little, our environment is changing around us and becoming increasingly hostile to our optimal health. And... People are kind of oblivious. Well, a lot of people are kind of oblivious to that. Some people have some idea that certain things are bad, but they just they don't want to have to think too much about it. And and we have advertising coming at us from all angles, and most people have been conditioned um, psychologically and physiologically to be adapted to things like sugar and starch as a primary uh, source of food and fuel. And you know and and a lot of people are addicted too to many of the things that they eat either because there are chemicals added to the foods that they're consuming that make them hungrier or make them crave certain things or because um uh or because there are say you know in morphine like compounds in some of what they're eating that that stimulate certain centers in their brain uh, to crave these foods constantly so Anything that tells them that maybe eating certain foods might not be a good thing is going to switch on all kinds of rationalizations and cynicism and and uh you know it's it and you know really to everybody's detriment um, I think that it takes extreme measures in in many respects to me to be optimally healthy today, and given the economy, I don't think anyone. Uh, who can't afford to get sick can afford to not eat optimally well. Um, and the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country right now is is, is healthcare crisis. Is health crisis. You know, most people are only one bad diagnosis away from total financial ruin. Right. And uh, so, if you can't afford that, then maybe it's time to get a little bit radical about your health and start looking at how your body works understand it better become more 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 personally responsible for your health and well-being rather than just simply entrusting that to whoever um whose best interests may not lie with you but may instead lie with profit and just get a sense of how your body works come to understand some of these ideas see if they resonate for you i'm not here to tell anybody what to do 
Mm-hmm. Um, the whole thing is is just simply to be able to present some information, and hopefully that information is useful to people in a way that can that can help them take the next step toward health they might not otherwise have. So, anyway, that's that's my little. Yeah, um, you know, it's all about providing that education, and people will decide for themselves. And exactly, exactly. So, in your view. Um, how far off are the diets of Americans from how our bodies are designed to eat? Wow, like 180 degrees. I mean, you know, literally the the whole uh, sort of the government standard certainly set for how we're supposed to be eating and how really most people do seem to eat um, is the inverse of the way our ancestors ate. Literally the food pyramid is upside down (laughs) uh, virtually from you know what the basic uh diet would have been for our most primitive ancestors who certainly uh led healthier healthier lives and so um so you know that's first and foremost obviously too uh we have many pressures and stresses upon us that our ancestors would never have even begun to imagine and uh yeah we're you know, we have everything from EMF to GMOs to <laughs> all the acronyms you want, you know, um, you know, to uh, BPAs and, uh, uh, you know, and we can go on and on about all the things that are, you know, the d- nutrient-depleted soils and uh, MSG and, and other excitotoxins injected in our food and heavy metal toxicity and, uh, you know, you can even, you know, you can go off into all kinds of tangents with that, but the fact remains is that we're living in a world that our ancestors could not even begun to have imagined. Mm-hmm. And so you add to that um, the fact that our food is depleted of a great deal of nutrients. That it, you know, I mean, just even in the last you know 50 years, there's been a radical reduction in in the quality of our soils and uh, the nutritional content of of many of the foods in which we eat. And, of course, the animals that we're consuming aren't even being fed foods that are natural to them. Uh, and, you know, so much about the health of meat for anybody has to do with the health of the animal where that meat came from. Mm-hmm. And if that animal was shot full of hormones and antibiotics and led a tortured life, that's not an optimal recipe for for health and well-being for us either. Um, uh, we overeat. That's part of the the issue too. And again, we still have the same psychology of a hunter gatherer who, you know, who when he came across he or she came across something to eat or you know or killed an animal or whatever that. You had when you had food, you didn't know if you were going to have food the next day or not. So you ate all you could when you could. Uh, now, you know, part of that equation too, though, is I, I doubt that we were having meat orgies every time that we ate. In fact, when you look at the way uh, primitive societies uh, exist and coexist, when an animal is taken, it's typically you know the meat is divided among the family members and other tribal members or other group members that were part of that um and uh were part of your life and and so the individual portion portions may not have been that great um a lot of the time we may have gone for extended periods of time without eating in fact that's quite probable uh because we have so many mechanisms in place physiologically to cope 
with the prospect of famine. Um, and, you know, I don't know that either feast or famine are necessarily uh, optimal states for us uh, either. And so how do you moderate that? And what are the, you know, what are the things you have to know about um, moderating that? And, and again, that's, that goes into some of the longevity stuff that I talk about in the book. But in terms of the standard American diet, um, you know, 90 cents out of every food dollar spent in this country right now is actually being spent on processed food. The number one source of fat calories in this country is coming from hydrogenated soybean oil. And the number one source of calories, period, is actually coming from high fructose corn syrup, neither of which exist um, in nature, uh, neither of which were ever designed to be any part in any way, shape, or form uh, of our diet, uh, both of which come out of uh, test tubes in their, own, uh, in their own way, and neither of which have any ability to support healthy natural physiological function, and both of which can dysregulate it tremendously. So we're operating at an enormous disadvantage mm-hmm. um and the, and and part of the issue too is that uh so much is skewed toward uh in terms of media advertising in terms of the way uh things are taught in conventional uh medicine uh in terms of the way um uh, in terms of the way things are, are run politically, which is basically driven uh, more by corporate interests than anything else, there's a tremendous amount of money right now that's invested in people consuming a diet that basically enslaves them to a dependence on carbohydrates, specifically grains, but processed foods and uh and all the things that you know the food pyramid holds dear, and uh, you know we're not going to get the information that we need from mainstream sources. Um, we're not going to hear about all of this. I mean, you know, in the really on the evening news, unless it's just something in in passing that's sort of written off as it's as it's as it's spoken of, and they will always have some kind of spokesperson from a corporate you know agency or somebody paid by a corporate agency to stand up and say well that's ridiculous and you know really we all need to be eating whole grains and uh, healthy whole grains it's almost like one word um and you know and all these things are really great after all so um so people i you know much too I'm really sympathetic, really, where, this, where the average American is in all of this because it's hard not to be jaded. It's hard not to be cynical about about information regarding nutrition. Of course, once right. upon a time, it wasn't that mysterious. It was very straightforward. Uh, people didn't, you know, have to question what it is they need to eat. They didn't need to eat. They just ate. Right. Whereas today, uh, there's so many different interests coming at you that are invested either emotionally or most often economically uh, to manipulate your thinking in a certain way. And then on top of it, you're physiologically confused because you're addicted to certain foods, whether you're aware of it or not. And depending on certain foods that may be not optimal for you to be depending on, um, and 
uh, and you know, people just simply don't know really what to think or where to turn. So they just throw their arms up in the air and say, "Oh heck, you have to die of something anyway. Might as well just eat what I want and everything in moderation and yada yada yada." Yeah. And I think that that's really dangerous thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we don't have that luxury anymore. Um, I I think that we all really need to be taking our health extremely seriously. Um, to get through this time period and to be optimally healthy. And you can't afford to be anything less than optimally healthy in, in the kind of world that we're in. Yeah, it's a good business yeah, move, good right? Business Take care of your health, yeah, yourself and it'll be less expensive later. It'd be the single most single best investment I think anybody could make. I mean, people are looking at investing in gold and silver and, you know, or aspects of the stock market or, you know, their or real estate or whatever. Your number one investment should absolutely be number one your health um, because if you don't have that you know the rest of it doesn't matter right so uh, this has to be a priority it just has to be and really it's all about it all boils down ultimately to what you prioritize mm-hmm. and everybody's at a different place with that you know it's all it's all of this i understand as a process that some people are not very far away from uh, from seeing things the way that you and I might be inclined to talk about it. Uh, and for them, it's just a matter of a few minor adjustments to kind of make things a little bit better and to you know to feel better and function better. For other people, it's like uh, it's just like a sack of wet cement upside the head. You know, <laughs> they, they've never heard anything like this before. What do you mean cholesterol is, is not so bad for you? What do you mean... Um, saturated fat is okay, and you know what do you mean carbs are bad, and what do you mean you know what do you mean about anything? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for people to take in when they've been told the opposite. Sure. So uh, yeah. Now, now you mentioned earlier you talked about overeating um, and how we all yeah. you know Americans overeat. Let's talk a little bit about how the food guide pyramid really is conducive to overeating. What's what's going on from a physiology standpoint with that? Well, from a physiology standpoint, what you have is a proportion of nutrients in the food pyramid that is essentially identical to the proportion of nutrients found in swine fattening chow. So uh, everybody can kind of take a hint. I mean, 11 servings of grains a day is sort of optimized uh, or considered the optimal. You know, no human people group in the history of the human species has ever eaten a diet remotely uh, resembling what that USDA food pyramid or plate or whatever you want to call it suggests is optimal. Mm-hmm. This is all. This is, is. There's nothing about that pyramid that's based in science. It's politics and economics. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that you're, you know, basically being, you know, you, you know, uh, played by corporations when it comes to that model, uh, then you understand that, you know, who benefits if you're eating. Far more than you know than than you require in order to be in order to be healthy, and in fact, you're being asked to eat foods that are extremely new to the way your body has has been designed, um, and and that that is that there's in no way that that can lead to optimal health. There are people that can get away with it for a while, especially when you're young. Although people are developing. You know, there are babies with arterial plaques nowadays. So, um, you know, so issues, these issues are impacting people younger and younger and younger all the time. But, um, but the food pyramid is basically a setup for uh, 
prescribing a certain way of eating that is most likely to benefit the people that created the pyramid um, than to benefit anybody who actually follows those guidelines. And one of the things I'm fond of saying is is that if anybody wants to really go and take a look at what the food pyramid, if you decide to follow those guidelines, is likely to do for you, um, all anybody has to do is go to a native reservation and look around because native reservations um, have food delivered to them by government agencies um, that are that are basically delivered by by government guidelines that's a food pyramid based diet that many people on reservations are being subjected to and you can see very visibly how it's affected the health of many people living in these places um you know obesity diabetes heart disease alcoholism uh virtually everything that you can imagine that uh are the you know the top causes of of death actually nationwide but here's a here's a culture uh, uh of of people that has been um relegated to uh, to eating this way in a much more systematic fashion so uh and you know we're encouraged to think of um you know more food is being better you know so many people they go to a restaurant and and they don't feel like they've been properly fed unless that plate has been mounded over and uh they feel ripped off unless that plate is just you know mounted up with food and they'll go to buffets and you know fill up and then go back for seconds and thirds and then go back for dessert and try to you know squeeze what they can out of that out of that so-called good value and uh you know we're not designed to be stuffing ourselves every day all the time and we really don't necessarily have a sense of what enough is mhm uh so it's it's something i think that that bears some attention and it's you know again in the in, in the economic times that we're in there are ways of eating that can give you everything you need uh without having to spit not not only without having to go broke but also without having to spend really that much money um, and uh it's not that hard <laughs> right yeah for those of you who just Definitely. tuned in, we're uh, speaking with Nora Gigaudis, author of Primal Body, Primal Mind. I'm sorry about the echo. I know there's an echo with my voice. I have no idea what it is. Um, but I'm talking, okay. So <laughs> I sat back down again. Okay, is that better? It's just me, actually. You sound fabulous. That's why I'm letting I'm letting you do the majority of the talking. Number one, you're oh, okay. smart, and number two, I just have this echo. So I'm just actually, it's not even happening right now. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, so if you are just tuning in, any listeners, and you would like to call in and ask a question, the number is 818-495-6919. And uh, I'm actually going to take a couple of Facebook questions. This question is from Lisa, and she wants to know, I'd like a, a few simple strategies on how to transition from a sugar burner to a fat burner, and how quickly does that happen for most people? Well, my experience is that it takes somewhere between three to six weeks, really, to to fully make the transition to where it's comfortable, you're not craving things. Now, it can happen faster, but I think 
you know, to be to be give it a fair shake. It's you know three to six weeks or so, uh, depending on your age and you know your state of health before you begin all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen to have you know an advanced or you know diabetic condition or um, you know severe hypoglycemic issues or you're pregnant or uh, you know you have some serious uh, uh, you know a hardcore alcoholic or something like that. I really would like to see you working with a knowledgeable healthcare provider before you make any fancy moves, uh, because we don't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak. Uh, this is something that should not be uh, a painful transition, but it's one in which you know your your body kind of has to be prepared to handle. Now, I know many many people who uh, are now form you know now former alcoholics and. Who are doing, uh, you know, miraculously well with uh, both forms of um, of diabetes and um, both the main forms, and uh, in all other kinds of processes or, or other kinds of complaints, I should say. Uh, and they made this transition just fine. But I I still want to be people to be cautious where caution is due. So that said. I used to think that a gradual reduction in in sugar and starch was the way to go uh with respect to uh making the transition over you know just cut the amount that you're eating in half and then you know and gradually reduce that until you magically transition over to this other you know this other uh, metabolic state and it doesn't work that way mm-hmm. if you are metabolically adapted to being a sugar burner uh, your body is looking for that kind of fuel. And if all you're doing is reducing it to a trickle, you're putting yourself into a tortured state where it's going to be quite uncomfortable, you're going to have a ton of cravings, and you're just kind of um, just gradually sort of reducing it in a way that um, I think is kind of a setup for failure, honestly. What I have found seems to work better for most people that are capable of handling this kind of transition well is just, um, you know, like the Nike ad says, just do it. Um, just cut it off at the knees. Now, in order to also to override what is going to be an obvious um, uh, transitional state where your body is going, wait a second, where'd the carbs go? You know, and your body hasn't quite yet figured out how to make use of ketones uh, very efficiently. Uh, I tend to recommend to people to to go out and get supplements like L-glutamine, go out and supplement with things like Gymnema sylvestra, which is an herb that can kind of help to kill carb cravings and improve maybe insulin sensitivity a little bit. And, uh, um, and you know, maybe, um, you know, you might find yourself wanting to eat perhaps a little bit more often in the beginning, but... But sticking to foods that are mainly um, either protein and fat or are fibrous vegetables and greens. Um, green drinks are great too, as long as they're not sweetened with anything. There's a lot of there are a lot of so-called green drinks on the market that are pretty junky. So just be careful, you know, in terms of what you pay for, because you do to some degree get what you pay for. Um, anyway. Or you can juice your own uh, vegetables and greens at home as long as they're not starchy or sugary. Uh, And typically it will be, uh, 
you know, you can use those supplements like bicycle training wheels in the process of converting over. Now, some people don't use those supplements, and actually their bodies seem to figure it out pretty quickly on their own. And it's like, no, you know, it's just that it was. I was just fine. I just started. Uh, I just switched over, and and I seem to be just fine with it. But if you're the kind of person that normally gets a little jittery between meals or a little cranky or brain fogged, then you find that you need to eat fairly regularly if you keep if you want to keep an even keel, but not like you have any really serious uh, metabolic disorder. Then you're the, probably the kind of person that could best benefit by adding some supplementation uh, to that process to make it go a little smoother. Sometimes L-carnitine is useful because that's the substance that your body uses to transport fatty acids into the mitochondria where they can be burned for energy uh, more efficiently. So with more carnitine, um, it can help your body figure out how to facilitate burning fat for energy sometimes a little bit faster. And again, that's one of those things that you don't need to do forever. Uh, it's just during a transitional period of time. And uh, once your body adapts, it adapts. And it's usually not that big a deal for most people, it, but it can be for some. And I, I have an article on my uh, on my blog called um, uh, Taming the Carb-Craving Monster, and I've done uh, a number of uh, lectures on that topic that you know may be accessible to some of you. And, you know, the... For people that have a really hard time with it, you know, there are strategies. But generally, that's what I recommend. Now, for once that transition has been made and the person is now um, in that state of becoming a fat burner, what, in your experience, do they experience? What What is their uh, like symptom picture like? That's actually a great question. Um, you know, for me, what the initial, uh, I think, what the revelation was for me was that it's like, wow, I'm I'm actually sleeping all the way through the night. I'm sleeping more soundly. I wasn't getting that sort of 3 a.m. awakening that oftentimes accompanies hypoglycemic states. Um, for other people, it may just simply be that they find themselves able to go for long periods of time during the day without eating, but they still feel a, a lot of energy. They feel really even keeled. Their moods are are much more stable uh uh their outlook is you know is a lot more um uh able to be positive and uh they also may find them find it much easier to to, to have their weight move to toward a greater normalization um and so there are a lot of different things that a person might see uh i have a lot of people reporting to me that a lot of little aches and pains seem to go away uh, pretty quickly. Uh, a lot of just sort of unpleasant and annoying uh, symptoms, and some that aren't so little, uh, very often just sort of seem to magically uh, clear up. I mean, it's extraordinary in my mind what can be accomplished by some very simple and basic dietary measures. Um, and that may not be the magic bullet for everything for everybody, but it's going to give you a much better foundation from which other interventions are going to more easily be able to help. Um, and so uh, I think it's a fabulous foundation. Great. Great. Thanks yeah. for that. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and take a, a caller now. We have a caller who's been very patient. Um, okay. Caller from the 303, are you there? 
Yes, I am. Hi, thanks for calling in, Dr. Low Radio, with our guest, Nora Gigaudis. What's your question and where are you calling from? Calling from Longmont, Colorado. Hello. Hey. Hi. I'm enjoying the show so far. I wanted to I wanted to ask you, I was diagnosed with fatty liver about two years ago. Okay. And I I've, I've really have tried to eat greens, a ton of greens and uh, meat, but now I'm told I need to eat fat. Is that good for my liver? Well, again, um, well, I have to be, I have to, you know, preface this by saying it's, I, I can't necessarily address a medical condition here. Um, but, and I want to be cautious about that. And I don't know everything that's going on with you, but I can tell you that um, nobody comes to a diagnosis of a fatty liver who's necessarily come from a background of a low-carbohydrate diet. And dietary fat usually is not the culprit. It is typically uh, dietary carbohydrates, alcohol, things like that, that are going to precipitate that kind of a problem. Now, your liver... um, uh, I don't know exactly what's going on with your gallbladder, and, and that's another consideration to take, uh, to, you know, to talk about. Uh, if you have symptoms of gallbladder issues, or if you've ever had uh, gallbladder issues, that's something that we'd have to take into account while talking about this. Um, and you may or may not be in a position to process fats very well if you have any symptoms of, of gallbladder uh, dysfunction you know, either stagnant gallbladder or you you think you might have gallstones or you've been told you have gallstones, that has to get addressed first. And it may be appropriate for a period of time to eat a lower-fat diet until you get that under control because you really don't want to trigger a gallbladder attack if that's part of what's going on. And, again, I don't know. Okay. Well, my gallbladder was checked out and they said it was fine. Okay. Okay. Good. So that's that helps that definitely helps right. so anything you can do to support the health of that gallbladder um and i know that there are uh supplemental preparations with things like you know beet juice from the tops of of beets and uh there are uh nutrients like taurine or choline uh sometimes uh certain forms of lecithin can be uh, useful as as agents to kind of help support biliary health and keep that moving along well. Um, so uh, what they call lipotropic agents. Sometimes you can get lipotropic formulas, and those those are helpful. But fat in and of itself, if you have a healthy gallbladder, should not necessarily be a problem. And what I'm advocating isn't a diet that's high in fat. Um, it's, it's a high percentage fat diet. Because we're moderating the protein, or excuse me, the calories coming from things like protein, and we're coming as close as we can to eliminating the calories that we're getting from carbohydrates. So the primary caloric intake is coming from a moderate amount of protein and just as much fat as you need in order to satisfy your appetite, which ultimately doesn't end up being that much because it doesn't take a lot of fat to be satiating. It's very filling. Um, all by itself. And then you eat as many vegetables and greens as you need to to have some bulk. But um, 
and to get some antioxidant value and, and whatnot. But that's basically the formula. So we're not talking about drinking lard here, you know, or <laughs> you know, or chewing on a brick of Kerrygold at the end of a popsicle stick, as, as delightful as that might be. <laughs> Come on, um, you know, sorry, but but you know, it, but don't be afraid of of fat. It's something that we've always consumed as a species. Um, we need a certain amount of fat in order to make use of the protein in our diets. We need fat for so many things in terms of how our bodies um, are designed and put together that it's just not even funny. And, um, you know, they, most of your brain and nervous system are made up of fat. Roughly 80% of your nervous system and your brain are made up of fat by dry, by dry weight. Uh, about half of that fat saturated. You know, the reason being, of course, is that your brain and nervous system aren't um, aren't refrigerated. So saturated fat is inherently resistant to oxidation and provides a nice um, uh, uh, stable sort of place for the other, uh, nice stable protection for the other more delicate polyunsaturated fatty acids that make up the human brain like DHA. And you need fat for the absorption of so many important nutrients in your diet. You need it for making hormones. You need it for the healthy structure of your cell membranes, and you need it. Actually, fat is the primary fuel for for the human heart. Um, you know, your heart needs it too. And if you want to keep a healthy gallbladder, you've got to use it. You know, you've heard the old "use it or lose it." Well, you know, your gallbladder is there to help you digest fat. Um, you need it for your immune system. You need it for your obviously uh, for for a healthy, stable nervous system. Um, and it it just sort of goes on and on. So, and you need fat from a variety of natural sources, not just one thing. You know, just naturally occurring fats. And it doesn't have to be rocket science. It doesn't have to be that complicated. You don't need to be um, uh, trying to decide. Well, you know, well, what kind of fat should I eat? Well, whatever naturally occurring fat is there in your meat and fish. Um, you can use some olive oil. Um, you can cook your meat or fish in things like ghee, or if if you're casein not if you're casein tolerant, you can do butter, um, tallow, or um, even lard if it's from a from an organic non-hydrogenated source. Uh, coconut oil is a marvelous, marvelous fat to cook with. And by the way, uh, coconut oil tends to bypass the gallbladder anyway uh, uh, because those medium chain triglycerides. Um, are processed differently than than most regular fats are, or, or most longer chain fats. So, um, you know, nuts and seeds, things like that. And really, like I say, it doesn't take a lot to feel satisfied. It is important that you get some of the essential fatty acids. You know, like the kinds of things you get from omega three fish oil or krill oil. Um, there's a, an essential fatty acid called gamma-linolenic acid, which is actually an anti-inflammatory omega-6 um, that you can either supplement with, um, or you know that that you can try to, or that you can try to supplement with. I, I usually like black currant seed oil uh, better than barrage oil or evening primrose, but I think that that oftentimes is is a useful one for a lot of people. Um, but um, Omega-3 fats are not the only fat people should be getting in their diets. 
And uh, there's so much hype around fish oil that a lot of times people are over-consuming now polyunsaturates, which is a bad idea in the other direction. Um, uh, there really kind of needs to be a balance. It's not any one fat necessarily that is... Uh, that's that's the issue. It's the relative balance of these things in your diet. And if you just eat a diet that that has them naturally contained in the food that you're consuming, for the most part, you should be fine. Uh, and you might need a little extra supplementation to keep inflammation down and that sort of thing. Well, thank you so much. That's a lot of information. Yeah, information. yeah. <laughs> well, I hope it's helpful. <laughs> Very helpful. I'm I'm, I'm going to play this back and write a bunch of things down. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. You're so okay. welcome. Thanks for calling, Michelle. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. 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 You know, I, I can see how that would be confusing. You know, someone being diagnosed with fatty liver and then instantly going, oh, I better stop eating fat, you know, but there's right. that connection. It's like eating fat and actually, you know, having eating cholesterol and actually fat. does even having cholesterol even increase risk of diseases. I mean, there's just this disconnect between our mouth, our physiology, and actual, like, diseases. Yeah, it's true. And we have this literal interpretation of things or many um you know, for for starters, the body's compartmentalized, and you know, and if you are overweight, that's a separate issue than being depressed or having uh, attentional problems or having uh, you know memory issues. And uh, but but going back to uh, you know the idea of how literal things are, there's this whole idea that well, fat must make you fat. I mean, if you're fat, it must mean that you're eating too much fat. Or if you, uh, you know, or if you are lacking this particular hormone, that must mean that your body's stupid and didn't know how to make it, and therefore you must need to have that hormone supplemented. Um, and uh, and if your cholesterol is quote unquote elevated, and again that's a whole subject for debate all by itself as to what elevation even means, then that must mean that your body was being bad and that that the cholesterol must need to be lowered rather than taking a look at the system as a whole and trying to understand what the body's trying to tell you from what it's doing i mean you know and as and as i know that uh you know it was a, a quote of mine that you posted on your facebook the other day thank you by the way uh you're welcome you're welcome yeah you know being that being fat does not come from eating fat it comes from this inability to burn fat and that inability to burn fat is going to be a natural outgrowth of depending on carbohydrates for your primary source of fuel. I mean, think about it. You, you, you get, if you want to get good at something, you get good at it by doing a lot of it. So if you want to get good at something like, you know, tennis or uh, piano playing or whatever else, you get good at it by doing it a lot, by practicing it a lot. And, you get good at fat by get get good at burning fat by basically by burning fat. You don't get good at burning fat by burning carbohydrates all the time by trying to run your body on carbohydrates. It there's there's a disconnect there. You cannot be good at burning both. So um, your body's going to be in, inherently dependent on one or the other, and whichever one you choose is going to make an enormous difference in terms of how healthy you are and how long you live. And the one thing that is certainly true of all the long-lived individuals 
is universally across the board, and everything from yeast to primates, are low insulin levels. And, of course, carbohydrates are the primary form of fuel that are more likely to provoke uh, an insulin response. And so um, those are the first things, since carbohydrates are actually the one macronutrient for which there is no fundamental human dietary requirement, to me that's a no-brainer. Get them out of there. We don't have to have them. We don't ever have to consume a single molecule of sugar starch in order to have enough glucose to do what our bodies uh, need to do, including our brain. The only tissue that has to have glucose in order to function normally and healthfully are our red blood cells. Those feed anaerobically because, of course, glucose is an anaerobic form of fuel um, in order to preserve their precious cargo, which is oxygen. Every other tissue in your body and your brain under normal everyday conditions can run beautifully on nothing but ketones and free fatty acids. And in fact, your brain and nervous system prefer that. It's much safer for your brain to be relying on fat. And the reason I say safer is that your brain doesn't have a whole lot of protection against the effects of insulin. Insulin is, you know, a fairly damaging substance. And, um, and your body, your, your brain is not able to become insulin resistant. So, um, it has really no defense against high levels of insulin and high levels of glucose. Uh, your brain will always be able to derive energy from glucose because we may need to be able to do it in an emergency. Um, but glucose is very damaging. Actually, well, sugars in general are very damaging. Uh, in fact, fructose is far more damaging, actually, than glucose, but that's a whole other subject uh, at the moment. Mm-hmm. But right. glucose, over the course of your life, whether you have high blood sugar or low blood sugar, it is going to combine with proteins and fats in your tissues, and it's going to cause them to become sticky and misshapen and start to dysregulate, and that's called advanced glycation. Or well, it, what the what they what that creates is something called advanced glycosylation end products, um, or advanced glycation end products, depending on who you talk to, um, and those attract a lot of free radical activity. They attract a lot of inflammation. Uh, sugar is very damaging, and so your body is obsessed with maintaining the lowest necessary level of blood sugar at any given time. And uh, it's 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 going to do that. And when you consume something that is <clears throat> really high in 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 sugar, and it provokes a glycemic response, your body's going to work double time at trying to burn as much of it right away as it can. It's going to, it's looking for that emergency because sugar is basically rocket fuel. That's what we need uh, in an emergency to fuel. And escape. If we have an emergency situation, you know, something jumps out from behind a bush with the intent to kill you, you know, that, you know, you need rocket fuel now. And Mm -hmm. hopefully Mm -hmm. that helps you fuel your escape. But whatever you have that's in excess of that, of that immediate need, if, you know, or if you don't have that immediate need to run away, you're just noshing on a Krispy Kreme for the heck of it, then your body's going to take. Uh, some of the excess and try to put it into storage wherever it can just in case it needs uh, some glucose later. But it doesn't really take a lot to fill up those storage sites. We don't store more than a couple thousand calories of glycogen at any given time. 
in our in our liver and in, in our muscles. And so whatever's left over then is going to get converted by your liver into triglycerides. Um, hopefully the previous caller's hearing that part. And mm-hmm. and at that point it gets sent off to become body fat, the stuff that we would all really rather not have too much of. And um and so but once that happens, of course, if you're dependent on sugar, then that level may suddenly because insulin is really not a blood sugar hormone. It it will take sugar out of your bloodstream and try to move it into storage or into your cells for for energy. But it it does that very crudely and it does it as just sort of a trivial side effect of what it's actually designed to do. You know, I actually have a caller who's been on the switchboard for a while now, so I'm going to go ahead and bring this patient caller on the line. This is a caller from the 213. Caller, are you there? I am here. Good evening. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for calling hey in. Uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, my name is Stephen. calling from L.A. I was recently diagnosed as uh, gluten intolerant, and uh, so uh-huh. I kind of changed my whole diet plan and whatnot, uh, and actually I'm enjoying it, but... Uh, I noticed a huge improvement in my health, uh, and things like my joints are uh, uh, easier now. I'm, I'm 60 years old and starting to experience uh, some stiffness in my joints and, and uh, a few stomach problems here and there, but uh, now my joints feel a lot better. I haven't been grain-free totally, uh, trying to eat some uh, gluten-free uh, pastas and things like that, and they're okay. They don't taste quite as good as some of the others, but, but they're not bad. Uh, my question is, in your view, do you think that some grains are okay? Should I be totally uh, grain-free? What should I be doing with that? Okay, so, so my take on this, and this is just this is my point of view, I, I don't consume grains of any kind um, ever, and and part of the reason being is that um, regardless of what grain it is, whether it is a gluten-containing grain uh, or not, it's still going to be um, basically a very high starch food. And the other the other piece of that equation is is that. Um, that I kind of just assume not have that type of food on my radar screen at all. In other words, I'm not constantly thinking about where can I get my next slice of bread, gluten-free or not gluten-free. Um, I don't. I just don't even think about bread. It's just not on my radar screen. You know what I mean? Right. And so my my thinking doesn't go there, and therefore there really isn't any temptation. Right. Now, the other thing to take into account also with many people that are gluten sensitive um, are also subject to things called um, cross-reactivity. And and cross-reactivity is something that is not very well understood uh, even by people who have been diagnosed with gluten sensitivity for a while and, and they, you know, they think they've kind of got the whole gluten-free thing down. Because there are, and I and I hate to even break this news to you, but there there are a number of compounds um, that your body may be inclined to react to as if they were gluten, and some of the non-gluten containing grains, or many of them, even though they don't contain the form of gluten that is most commonly associated with things like celiac disease, they're similar enough 
in their genetic uh, makeup. They're closely related enough that in a sensitive individual, a person can possibly react to them as if they were gluten. This can also include things that are molecularly similar but not necessarily related, things like casein, which is a molecule very similar in its molecular structure um, to gluten. Um, it, you know, and, and it can include other things as well. And so uh, there, there is a lab right now, and there's only one lab as far as I'm concerned that is testing for this sort of thing with any accuracy, and that's a lab called Cyrix Labs, which I, I know Dr. Noel that's, knows about. Yeah, that's the lab that's that actually lab we actually used uh, to diagnose it. To be diagnosed, yes. It was a well, I would test. go back to whoever you went to to get that test, because it has to be okay. ordered by a licensed healthcare provider. Right. Whoever you went to, go back and say, could we please do, pretty please, an Array 4 panel? Uh, because that will help identify for you potentially cross-reactive compounds. Oh, now, I've done that panel on myself, and it, you know, as it so turns out, and I don't remember all of it right now, um, but one example, for instance, of something that normally people think of as okay if you're gluten-sensitive, I react to quinoa as if it were gluten. Oh, um, I, I react to casein <laughs> as if it were gluten. Yeah. I'm not saying that you will. Yeah. You know, your makeup is different than mine. It, it may or may not have the same issue. What I'm saying is you don't know until you test. Right. And uh, the only test I trust is Cyrex. So, um, so I'd really recommend you do that. Uh, okay. Just to clarify some of that for yourself so that you're going about this, going into it at least with your eyes open. And then if you find that you're, you know, that you're, you know, you show a negative for cross-reactivity for these things, which I trust a little better with Cyrex than I do other forms of negative results, then you have to make that decision whether or not you are going to choose to incorporate some of those so-called okay grains or not into your diet. And again, I'm not here to tell anybody what to do, but for myself, uh, for the sake of my own optimal health, I choose to not consume foods that are rich in starch. Um, I just try to avoid them as completely as I can. And I keep them off my mental radar so that it's just never an issue. And the, you know, the concern that I have when you're looking for the gluten-free substitutes is that although they're getting better with some of this stuff, well, for starters, a lot of it's very highly processed to begin with, um, and a lot of it doesn't necessarily taste quite like <laughs> you remember things like pasta and bread and whatever else tasting. And so, again, when you have that mindset of you know, wanting those foods all the time, and you're less than satisfied with the form of that that you're that you're consuming. The temptation is always there to sort of backslide out and 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 you know start eating gluten rich foods again, which is just about the biggest mistake on the planet you can make. So, right, right. Um, I will say that uh, one uh, little so-called pasta substitute that I've recently come across that that I. Uh, that I do enjoy from time to time are kelp noodles. I don't know if you've heard of those, but it's an actual food. I know that there are other low-carb noodles out there, but what I like about kelp noodles is that they're real, that they're based on you know, on real food, um, and um, have some nutritional content that your body can make use of, in addition to being completely free of carbohydrates and satisfying that, you know 
that need to maybe have you know sauce over something stringy. <laughs> right. right. You know, they're they're okay too in like soups and 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 things like that, and they really don't impart. Uh, much of any flavor, they'll just sort of take on the flavor of whatever it is that you happen to cook them with. But you can use them in stir fries or use them like spaghetti. They're sort of like angel hair type things, and they have sort of a cellophane noodle consistency. So you might consider okay. and that. I, and I can get those at Whole Foods or something like that? Yeah, most of the natural food stores and co-ops okay. um, are carrying those now. Okay. At least that I've come across, you know, here where I am. Uh, I don't know where you are, but you could probably Google it online and, and find sources. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Enjoy You're the show. So welcome. Yeah. yeah. You bet. Bye-bye. Uh, Nora, do you have time for one more question? Sure. Okay, great. I have this caller is from the uh, 508. Caller, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Hi, is this Lisa? Hi, I recognize your voice. It is. It is. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for calling Another in. Lisa. What's the question? <laughs> yeah. um, I'm wondering what your opinion is on consuming farm-raised venison. Ah, uh, well, you know, I, I mean, I do take ethics seriously. I mean, I and I, for me, I think that eating animals is an okay thing to do. It's something we've always done. Everything in this world is part of a cycle of life, um, including us, whether we like to think we're a part of it or not. Uh, That said, again, I think the health of the meat we eat is in large measure um, can can be correlated to the health of the animal that that meat came from. And I personally will not support... uh, you know, commercially raised uh, veal, and I, 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 you know, I don't like supporting uh, commercially uh, raised feedlot beef and that kind of a thing. I don't consider it food, and I don't want to contribute to the um, unnecessary suffering of any living thing. Uh, but that said, if it's an animal that was allowed to live in fresh air and sunshine and have access to its mother and um, and that kind of thing. It, whether it, it, if it's a you know if it's a baby animal, I mean it's you know uh, it's no different than lamb. But if that animal was confined, placed in darkness, um, separated you know from from its natural environment and from its from its mother and everything else, and basically tortured to death in the first few days of its life, uh, I don't consider that food. And I would rather not associate myself with that, you know, that that uh, that kind of food. So I don't know if that answers yeah, your question or not. It does. This is from a small family farm, so it's outside on pasture, free frolicking, all that good stuff. Well, there you go. You know, again, everything in this life um, ends up serving as food for something else. And everything in this world that's alive has to kill in order to eat, even if you're a vegetarian. I guess it's a matter of, you know, what what you prioritize and, and, and what you, you know how what kind of value you place on different kinds of life. To me, life is life, and life begets life, and and death and life are all part of a cycle. And um, you know, I of course I I don't know how. Many of your listeners are aware that I had a I have a background in having worked uh, a great deal with wolves, 
I actually spent a summer of my life living less than 500 miles from the North Pole with a family of wild wolves. Um, and so I'm intimately aware of these processes. I've followed wolves on their hunts. I've watched what they do. And, you know, most even hardcore vegetarians don't necessarily vilify wolves because they kill other animals in order to eat. Um, uh, that's what they do. It's it's what they do in order to live because it's what they've always done and, and their physiology is adapted to those kinds of foods. And it's neither bad, you know, nor good if a wolf in fact in the in the summer months and in the spring months wolves are more likely to go after the young animals in, in an effort uh, because they're easier to catch. There there are a lot of small animals and uh, younger animals and they're easier to catch um in the spring and summer months. And so that tends to be a high percentage of a wolf's diet uh, in in the spring and summer. Um and to my mind that's neither bad nor good it just sort of is you know we are so far removed as a species now from from our place in the natural cycle of things and from where our food comes from that you know we either don't care um just don't have any way of recognizing it or, or recognize it or we somehow think we've risen above it and you know neither of course is is fundamentally true um i don't have a problem with um you know with lamb or veal if it's humanely uh, raised at all um, and uh so yeah, I could ramble more about that, but I <laughs> suspect that that probably answers your question. Thank you. I have one comment too for the previous caller. Spaghetti squash makes a good substitute for pasta also it does it does except that it is a little on the starchy side. It is. Squash That's tends true. To, yeah, squash tends to be kind of starchy. But probably less starchy than whatever pasta he was getting from well, the Well, maybe than white potatoes or something like that, but yeah. Thank you. Good idea. Thank you. Yeah, Thank sure. You. You're welcome. Thanks for calling in. Um, wow, man, I'm just I'm amazed at how fast these shows fly. It just goes by so fast. I'm oh, like, wow, where does the time go? Minutes. <laughs> I know where does the time go. Um, Nora, do you have anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners or anything else before you'd like to go? No, I just uh, recommend that you know if you have um, you know more questions or more um, interest in in what I've had to say or or in my book, that you can go to my website, which is www.primalbody-primalmind.com, and um, and uh, feel free. In, in fact, I I would love it if you'd sign up for my uh, you know for my newsletter, and. Uh, you know, hopefully you'll find a lot of useful information there. There are quite a few articles, there are videos I have. Um, I, I'm actually no longer actively um, uh, doing my radio show, but I have uh, dozens of podcasts uh, available from that, um, many of which people continue to find extremely valuable and, and helpful. And those are all free to access on my site. So there's a lot there, and uh, it really is set up as a give site, it's not um, not uh, it's not luring you in to try to uh, <laughs> suck you into some scheme. So, I suspect you'll find a lot of good information there that you'll be happy uh, happy you checked out. That concludes our show with Nora Gigaudis. Thanks for the listen. Uh, thanks for being patient with uh, some of the audio problems. I think that it turned out pretty good, uh, despite all of that.
Make sure to check out Nora's website, primalbody-primalmind.com, and check out her book. It's a fabulous, fabulous read. You'll love it. You'll learn a lot from it. If you like the information tonight, you're in for a treat. The next show will be with Rob Wolf. We're talking about the Paleo Solution, his book, and how to make this paleo lifestyle doable and fun. The week after that will be all about vaccinations. I'll have Dr. Sherry Tenpenny on the show. We'll be talking about the pros, the cons of vaccinations, what are the ingredients in vaccinations that are so bad, and what do the studies really show? Are vaccinations effective? And what about for kids? Should kids be vaccinated? Should babies be vaccinated as soon as they're born? We'll be talking all about it and taking your questions. It is your last chance for the Sugar Smackdown, the 21-Day Detox with Erin Huggins. I will be lecturing on the physiology of hormones and how hormones play a huge part in kicking that sugar habit for good. It actually starts this Thursday, um, Thursday the 14th, so we're coming up to it real quick. It's not too late if you want to sign up, and you can also bring a friend for free. So you and a friend can go have these on it and really reap those benefits. Um, check it out, DrLowSugarSmackdown.com. That's D-R-L-O, SugarSmackdown.com, and get registered. Again, thanks for being with us. We appreciate your support to provide these shows. I'm Dr. Lauren Noel, and I'm here to help you find natural solutions for your healthcare needs. Have a great week. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.